what do you guys want to chat about this year? Oh, this year. Funny. Funny. You know, 2017. How was Christmas, guys? <laughs> it was fun. It was lots of fun. I mean, here in Spain, we were pretty lucky with the weather. It wasn't... It, I wouldn't even call it cold. It was It was actually very mild. What does that mean? Like 25 degrees Celsius? Uh, more like 20, 15, 20, something like that. <laughs> Depending on your location. I mean, there were people <laughs> There were people on the East Coast like oh. uh, actually swimming in the sea. So, yeah, it, that, that happens wow. every now and then. It's not normal, but it happens every now and then. You do see 25s and maybe even a little bit higher, but just for a few days. Uh, it, they just happened over the Christmas holidays, so that's very nice. I got to move to Spain. Marius, how was the weather? How was the weather there? Checkbox weather. Yeah, it was uh, it was wet and cold here. Um, <laughs> Twenty degrees sounds pretty good. Uh, we had a we had a oh bunch of black goodness. ice and stuff, uh, but no no snow, uh, no fresh snow. I should say there's still some on the ground, but oh. it was uh, yeah. I, I was hoping for a white Christmas, and we got a like a white ish Christmas, which was good enough for me. So, so Oliver, here's my weather story. I have been in the new house for a total of three days, and I have shoveled the driveway five times. Wow. So uh, it is snowing and more snow and more snow. We have like double the amount of snow that already from all of last year combined. Is that like the Canadian equivalent of vacuuming? Yes. Nice. <laughs> Except we have to do vacuuming too. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Holy smoke, do we have a lot of snow. Like I bet you we have had two feet fall in the last like five days. At least it'd be more, it's probably more than wow. two feet. So anyway, there, that's my Christmas. We had a white Christmas. It wasn't just white. It was blinding white. Like you couldn't see anything white. Yeah. That's uh, honestly, I'm jealous of that. Cause that's the kind of thing that I like during the winter time. And uh, yeah, I don't have a driveway to, to worry about shoveling. So that's yeah. would have been perfect. Yeah. Then you have to shovel the driveway the next morning. So yeah, no, thank you. <laughs> good to hear you guys had a great holiday. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. It was, was fun. Pretty relaxing. And fun. now we're in 2017, which is pretty cool. Uh, hopefully this one will go better. Yeah, well, if, if uh, 2017 is, in, or if Skype calls are any indication of 2017, it might just be as bad as normal or bad as yeah, ever. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of tech, though, we're uh, we're starting the new year off with uh, with a bit of a venture. If you've been following us on Twitter, you'll see that I was bugging everyone to weigh in on um, on some options for opening up a little community around the show. We, we were talking about this internally for quite a while now, but... Um, it just seemed like the new year is a good time to launch it. So what we've done for the time being, at least, is uh, decided to open up our formerly private-only Slack to everybody. So um, we've got a form set up, and we'll link to it in the show notes, and you'll also see it on Twitter probably by the time you uh, are listening to this. But essentially, if you if you want to join us on Slack and you want to you know be able to chat with us and share your work and you know talk about techniques and basically influence the next episodes of the show and and have a direct line to uh, the three of us then this is probably the best way to do it and we'll be uh, we'll be welcoming people it's basically the way that slack works is it requires that we send you an invite so we've just got a very quick form set up so that you can pass us the email address you want to use and whenever we get them we will just you know invite people and over time we'll probably refine what the um, layout and everything looks like in in terms of channels and things like that. Because one of the things that concerned me and some of our other folks who responded was that uh, Slack is a little geekier than something like a Facebook group. Um, But on the other hand, people tend to have very uh, polarized opinions about Facebook in general. So I think that this, for now at least, is the path of least resistance. And we'll just have to deal with people, um, you know, learning Slack, essentially, which is not the end of the world. Yeah, as far as uh, messaging apps uh, goes, I think this is one of the better ones. 
there have been some horror stories out there about uh, you know the way it just eats ram for breakfast like there's no tomorrow but right but other than that i mean i personally haven't experienced any issues because of that so your mileage may vary depending on your machine of course but but i like the way it looks i like the way it feels so i'm happy that we we went with Slack. Yeah. So join us and, uh, you know, you'll be able to give us feedback and we'll, we'll do our best to keep it from becoming overwhelming because that's always the concern. If there's, you know, a million people in a ton of channels, it just becomes impossible to keep up and we don't really want that. So we'll do our best to, to keep that in mind as we as we grow. But yes, so we're ushering in 2017 by opening our, our backstage to everyone. So if you want to listen, just find that link, show notes or Twitter and uh, send us your email. Right on. And officially, we become a global podcast. Yep, just Open like the that. Doors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, did you guys uh, find any photography equipment under the tree? Sort of. Not yet. Are you still looking? Not yet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what are you waiting for? <laughs> uh, we do presents on January fifth. A what? We have the whole weird European tradition of the three wise men. That's the night from January fifth to January sixth. That's when we do. Christmas presents. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I always thought it was a terrible tradition because uh, children. They literally get their presents the day before returning to school. Yeah, that sucks. So it's like you don't get to play with your new toys, like basically for 24 hours and then off you go. That sucks. It's a bit cruel. but So we got to check in with you on our next episode because that's when it'll have been your weirdo Spanish Christmas. Yeah, I don't foresee any, any <laughs> revolutionary surprises in the photography department come January 5th. But ask me again sometime and... Well, who knows? Maybe, maybe there'll be something. Maybe, maybe you'll have bought yourself an RX-1R. <laughs> Unlikely, but hey, I, I wouldn't complain if that was the case. Yeah. Uh, I I have a couple of things actually that, that weren't so much under the tree because I just bought them for myself, but... Um, ah, the, those are the <laughs> best presents, man. <laughs> I love those kind of Christmases. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He, like, <laughs> I bought myself a present. My internal Santa knows me so well. It's, it's amazing. Um, <laughs> But anyhow, I so I, I picked up a pair of AirPods. I found someone who who sold them to me um, because obviously they're sold out everywhere in the stores still. I wasn't able to find one there. So I picked up a pair. Uh, they were still sealed. So it was just like brand new. And uh, I have fallen in love with them. They are definitely in my top uh, two favorite new Apple products of the past few years. Uh, they're great. Um, and the problems that they have are less bothersome than... I was expecting, I think. So that's right. that's a positive sign. Um, they're de- like the worst part about them, honestly, is the the way that the gesture works, the double tap thing, because it is extremely unreliable and extremely uncomfortable to perform because you're basically right. like bashing something deeper into your ear and there's no there's no comfortable way to do that because and it even it even like has a little picture on the on the instructions to to tell you not to tap on the stem which feels okay you have to tap on the actual bit that's right on your ear and it's just it's painful it's gross it's not a good gesture i basically try to avoid using it because not only do you look like an idiot constantly knocking something on your head um, but it also just doesn't doesn't work. Like honestly, it's it's very very unreliable. Um, so that's the worst part. But everything else is pretty great. I can definitely agree with that. I haven't used them personally, but reading all the reviews and watching the video reviews on YouTube, I just I don't understand how Apple released this product with such a weird control interface built in. I mean, 
you get away with using your watch, your Apple Watch, to control playback and pause yep. and yep. fast forward and everything. But if you don't own an Apple Watch, you have to use your iPhone or you're out of luck. You, there's no way to control playback from the, Air, the AirPods themselves, is there? Yeah, and that's that's basically the one major caveat that I would put out there is that if you're going to buy AirPods, you almost definitely want to make sure that you have an Apple Watch because right. otherwise it's not it's not a great experience. Um, like vo- volume changes with the uh, digital crown, perfect, you know, playback controls with the uh, the little uh, glance thing. It's not called a glance anymore, but whatever it is, the, the playback thing, totally fine, no problems whatsoever. I'm all right with it. But without the Apple Watch, it would definitely not be as good an experience. Um, but I think that the reason it, it ended up being this way is because they were working under these ridiculous constraints they, they imposed on themselves uh, to basically keep them looking just like the ear pods, to not make them bigger, to not have any sort of bulky, weird backpacks on it or anything like that. So there's only so much technology that they were able to shove in. And I think that the best they could do was an accelerometer rather than an actual touch sensor, right? Because that would have given them more options for like sliding gestures or, or things like that. But I think that they just found that it wasn't possible to fit that in. Um, and that's why they went with the accelerometer because it's simpler technology and it's presumably smaller. Right. Um, and so we have, we've ended up with this thing that's that's obviously a compromise and that's obviously the biggest compromise in terms of, uh, in terms of the design. Um, I would put that even above the sound. Um, so yeah, it's unfortunate, but if you do have an Apple watch, then it's not a non-issue, but it certainly mitigates the problem. Right. I, I'm confused about that. And I wouldn't rule out the possibility that this is software constrained or rather firmware constrained, because if they have the tech to detect a double tap, what's stopping them from detecting a triple tap or a single tap. And just with the, those three gestures, you get a, a lot more options to control things in the in the what uh, in the airpods so yeah i think it is a reliability thing like I, I think even their internal testing showed that it just wasn't it wasn't picking up those taps reliably enough to actually use them as a gesture because it's so because it's based on the accelerometer rather than actual contact it's i just think that they're they're finding it wasn't uh it, it wasn't as good it was more frustrating than not i think is a better way to put it at least if there's just one double tap like that's the only possible thing that you're trying there's no ambiguity about oh how close together do the taps have to be there's none of that it's just double tap that's it and you know it's yeah that makes sense it's not great but it is uh, I, I think that's the best they could do with the given hardware constraints and that might might even be one of the reasons for the delay that the AirPods uh, suffered from when they were yeah. announced to when they were finally available for purchase. It was like a couple months of, of a delay. Yeah, uh, maybe they yeah. they were originally intending to go for all those gestures and they realized it just wasn't reliable enough. Like you said, yeah, that would make sense. Yeah, that wouldn't surprise me at all. Wouldn't surprise me at all. But anyway, so the, that was my one thing. And then uh, the other thing uh, we had, uh, well, I had friend of the show Thomas Wong over. Um, just before the new year, because he was uh, he wanted to show me his new Peak Design Everyday Backpack, which I had been very curious about. Um, we've spoken a little bit about their stuff over the past uh, few months on the on the show, but not in much detail. Anyway, I really liked the backpack. I thought it was a, a fantastically designed bag. Um, definitely an improvement in terms of uh, build quality and and design over the Everyday Messenger, which I never really got used to. I've admittedly only you know, played with it in the store on several occasions, but it just, it never really clicked with me. Um, but the backpack I definitely fell in love with. And so I found someone locally, um, a local fine art photographer who had just received his, uh, 
kickstarted backpack and sling and I bought them both for less than what it would have cost me to uh, to buy one separately. So I was like, okay, that's a deal I can't yeah. really pass up. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so now I've been I've been trying to work with the sling as my everyday bag and the backpack as my you know carries more stuff bag, and they are fantastic. The sling in particular, I am amazed at how much it fits. Um, like I can I can carry literally my entire camera kit plus all the chargers that are required, plus my iPad Pro, plus the pencil, plus a Kindle, and it just, it all fits. Wow. It's uh, it's heavy at that point, but all of it fits in there, and that's just unbelievable. I was not expecting to be able to uh, to fit that much in there, so uh, color me impressed on that front. What would you say the main differences between the Sling and the Everyday Messenger are? Because you said you didn't enjoy the Messenger, so I'm thinking... They have to be substantially different. Yeah, they're very different. So the messenger, the messenger feels larger, um, and it hangs like a messenger bag. The sling you can't wear on your shoulder like that because of the way that it it hangs. It has to be across your back. Okay. And there's no, um, it, it kind of works the same as the backpack in terms of like you loosen the strap and then it swings around and you access it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but in in terms of that's actually my my one complaint so far is that in terms of um, speed and comfort um the messenger bag is easier because you just sling it over your shoulder and you're done this one you actually have to like put over your head and then tighten the strap and get it into position um so there's a little more finagling uh to to put it on and take it off especially with a winter coat um but at the same time it's also noticeably more comfortable to wear i think because of the way that it distributes the weight it's higher up on your back it's kind of attached to you so it's not flopping around right um which makes it much better like we went on a walk the other day and i i had it on for the entire day and we were you know climbing and hiking through icy areas and zero problems no like the the weight distribution was always rock solid it stayed right where I put it, and it was very, very simple to, at any point, loosen the little clasp on the strap, and it just swings out in front of you, camera comes out quickly, snap a few shots, drop it back in, slide it behind you, and you're done. So um, initially putting it on and taking it off is a little more time-consuming, but I think that ultimately um, it's nicer to carry. Nice. But yeah, there's and internally there's there's less space. I think the messenger bags, both of them, will carry more stuff if you if you fill them. Um, but also in terms of manufacturing, the fit and finish is superb on the sling, and they're also using the newer generation of uh, flexful designer of uh, flexful dividers, the ones that have like the dual platform thing, whatever they're calling them. Uh, so I think those are the the main differences. Those are by far my favorite my favorite aspect of all the Peak Design bags. Like those dividers yeah, are great. Yeah, they're amazing. I can't believe they haven't been implemented in the in the Messenger themselves. Like I'm I've had my eye on a Messenger, the Everyday Messenger, for quite some time, and now Henry's of course has it on sale. So I was ready to go and like drop the money on it, and off yeah. we go. And then somebody tells me, uh, particularly Thomas Wong, tells me that the build quality is totally different. And so I'm like, oh, I can't believe that those those flexible dividers haven't been brought over to the to the older product. Right, it just yeah. seems like a natural fit. Yeah, I think uh, the official word is that they're going to start selling the dividers separately, so that owners of the Everyday Messenger can just tear out the originals and put in the new ones. Um, because I think that's easier than uh, than waiting for them to like redesign the Everyday Messenger. I mean, that's their oldest bag now, so at some point they're going to probably make a version two, but that's probably further out you could buy and own a bag 
You buy an owner bag and throw the flexible divider in there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's the baby. problem. I think that's the biggest problem is that if they do sell the flexible dividers separately, then people will just, it'll cannibalize the sale of their bags because people will just be like, well, I'll use the dividers and put it in whatever bag I want. Yeah, they're definitely one so. of the main selling points of the bags, at least for yeah. me. Because many of the other features are a bit gimmicky, like sort of like the, it's almost like a seat belt. They have uh, security attaching mechanism on the messenger that helps stabilize the, ba the bag on your back when you're riding a bicycle, for example. And that's great for me yeah. because I do ride bicycles every day. But if you don't, then what's the point of having that, right? It's, yeah. It's just yeah. you don't care about that. The sling would be perfect for that. Plus the straps, th those little straps that like wrap around the outside that you can like attach, say a sleeping bag or like they had that video and they had the drone attached to the back of the backpack. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, people are going to use that, but mm. let's get real here. Yeah, no, but the nice thing is that it tucks away. Right, right, right. Clearly, right. if you like simple design and, and very, very minimal bags, these are not for you. These are extremely oh no. over-engineered <laughs> bags, and some people like that, and I can I can see myself using one of them, uh, no problem, but uh, I don't know that I would consider it my favorite bag ever. I don't know. It's There's just something off-putting about them, but anyway, to each their own. Yeah, I mean, I have to spend more time with each and put them through actual usage for longer before I can make any um, claims about them. But so far, the you know first impressions have been positive. Um, and on the over-engineered aspect of it, I do like that, um, especially with the the backpack, all of the straps, everything tucks away. Like there's they've they've thought of stuff like that so that when you if you set it up the way that you like it, there never has to be anything dangling around which is great because I hate that on any bag, basically, if, if there's straps or, or little things that are just flying all over the place, right. that that's not, I, I don't like that. So you can get rid of that on the on the backpack and on the sling as well. The, the little tightening things actually have a built-in elastic so you can easily keep them from uh, from flopping around, which is uh, which is cool. But yeah, those were my two. The AirPods and the, the Peak Design pair of bags were my, were my like Christmas photography slash gear related uh, acquisitions awesome hey what color did you get for the backpack and the sling oh ash ash for both oh so nice yeah. hey it's beautiful oh, why don't they have the messenger in that color man peak design redo the, the messenger and i will buy three of them <laughs> there you go <laughs> i don't know why well know one, why. one bag to carry each of your macbook pros right <laughs> right excuse me <laughs> yeah 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 i currently have two <laughs> how's it going testing with both uh you know what i haven't cracked Literally, this is like the second time I've cracked open the new one right now to record this podcast. So, uh, like, yeah, we we've been moving, so it's been a bit of a of a hectic schmelter over here. But, um, what can I say about the difference? There's very little difference. Like, kind of like we expected, right? You know, no difference in processor speed or or anything like that. I I, I think there's a few less OS glitches, like you know, sw switching between desktops and stuff like that. But Overall, the biggest difference is that my return enter key works again, my space bar works again, and my the trackpad. Guys, I like I can't believe that nobody's been bringing this stuff up or maybe they haven't bringing it up, but the quality control on my first MacBook Pro must have been just crap. Right. Cuz like the keyboard, every single button in comparison to the new keyboard feels mushy. Every single key feels mushy in comparison. Um, even the trackpad feels like mushy, like, you know, like it's a piece of aluminum, right? And we're pressing down on it. So th unless I'm, maybe I don't understand exactly how it works, but there's going to be like 
piece of aluminum on that trackpad or glass or whatever it is, is going to be moving up and down, right? So there's going to be like a little bit of, it has a little bit of flexibility. And even the trackpad on the new one feels tighter. Right. Tighter. The click is like more clicky. Like everything about the new one feels better. So I had that other one for a month, like a month. And then I had all, and there's a noticeable difference. So imagine if people own these things for years, like that's, I honestly, I think it's something to be worried about. I'm buying Apple Care for the first time ever on a laptop from Apple. I'm doing it tomorrow when I go in. And and that is like, because I'm worried about it for the long run. Well, you can buy it within the first year at any time. So you can hold off on the right. purchase if you want. You don't have to buy it right now. No, no. But either way, like I'm, I'm buying it. Yeah, sure, sure. But I mean, if, if the laptop is fine 11 months in, then chances of it going wrong after that is, they're, they're slimmer. Right, right. It just like, it just seems weird to me that I would experience all of those issues, issues. They're not really issues. Like they're literally like wear and tear. Like the dirt, it it implies that the durability of the machine is poor. Um, and, and that like, that's worrisome. I don't, I don't have $4,000 to drop every month (laughs) on a new (laughs) No kidding. No, I mean the, the, the easiest explanation is just quality control. Like you said, that's, I would, Chalk it up to that. I hope. I'm, my fingers are crossed. Um, so I will give another report eventually. I wonder if it's because the um, like the, the main difference between the two is that one was built to order and one was a standard configuration from the store. And it, it may be the case right. that those two go through slightly different QC processes or whatever. Who knows? But that's yeah. I mean, it's there's no way there's no way that one month of like light normal usage should produce so many problems that are obviously like mechanical defects it's not like you know jack tried writing on like typing on it really quick and she like she could tell the difference between the two machines just by like typing the word the and hitting enter like done and that that just cannot be taking place on on this hot this expensive of a laptop go ahead albro i was just going to say that to clarify that the the one that's working well is the built to order one right yeah 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 but it's also like only three days old yeah fair so enough. it's kind of hard to compare but um yeah, I'll be interested to see where we're at at the end of January. Um, you know where where it's at. I I'm not gonna lie, like I I'm honestly tempted to go and purchase like a magic keyboard to carry around with me so that I can save the keyboard for longer. Like that. I mean, if you want to boost sales, I guess that's the way to do it. But that's not right. But I I I'd go the other way around. I mean, I would work my uh, on the keyboard as as heavily as I could for the first month because that's you can return it if it doesn't work. Yeah, and then smash the enter key and all of a sudden, <laughs> oh, sorry, but you misread the return date. And uh, anyway, we'll we'll leave it at that. Right now, I'm very happy. It's great to have a, re, uh, a better keyboard. Um, and I'm excited to go return the other one so that I can say that I had two for a little while. <laughs> yeah. Just, uh, it's, it occurs to me now, you guys were making fun of me last episode for spending a lot on camera gear, but in the past couple months josh has bought two laptops and a house so yeah and but it's the second laptop man that's that's the one (laughs) that's the one that hurts (laughs) oh man you can buy two houses if you want that's that's okay no problem there that's the long-term plan two of everything just have a backup hey we started that trend with a like a q so like a q baby (laughs) yeah (laughs) double fisted anyway should we get to our should we get to our main topic here Let's.
All right. Sure. We talked about snow before, right? So we kind of have a good segue. Yeah, we mentioned it. So um, we got a question from uh, Mike the Fifth on Twitter. Mike is a longtime listener of the show. Um, he's asking if we've got any cold weather or winter photography techniques and gear recommendations. And this feels like a perfect time to do an episode about that because Josh is, like he said, buried in snow. And I am also in Canada and Alvaro does not... <laughs> <laughs> Does not know what snow is. Alvaro does not have snow. Uh, this is when living in Canada really pays <laughs> off, yeah, right? seriously. Totally. <laughs> it, it's identity, man. We, we generate our identity out of this. <laughs> well, for those who don't know, just, just to quickly establish facts here, I did live for a year in Finland, and they do get their fair share of cold over there. So I, I've experienced... Probably actually colder. <laughs> yeah, probably. I, well, I, I, I don't know about that, but similar in any way, in any case. Yeah. So, yeah. We've all been there. I didn't. I wasn't really into photography when I when I was living there. So, I can maybe talk about how I dealt with the cold personally. Maybe not so much uh, how it affected uh, my gear or my or my photography technique or anything. But that's uh, yeah. where you guys come in. So, let's go for it. Right. All right. So uh, the way I've broken it down is just to try and keep things organized. Um, there's there's basically two branches of stuff to talk about. So there's the technical considerations that come into play when you're shooting in cold environments. And then there's the human element of um, cold environments and how that affects you and your subject and things like that. So I think a lot of uh, a lot of discussion centers around the uh, the technical stuff. So why don't we start around the human element instead? Because not only is that something that Alvaro can help us with, but it just seems like um, a less um, explored part of this whole winter photography thing. It's more intuitive too, right? Yeah, it's exactly. I mean, number one concern from my perspective is um, it's really important not to die of hypothermia while you're shooting. So, step one. Yeah, <laughs> step one, don't die. Don't die. Ideally, make it back home. Yes, yes, with all of your extremities. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, there you go. Um, so step one, uh, but but uh, more seriously, how to do that? Um, you know, I think a lot of people get a little obsessive over um, the kinds of gloves that they use and the kinds of whatever. And to be honest with you, the the best advice that I ever received on just dealing with winter temperatures is to rather than trying one huge heavy coat or something like that, is to layer, because layering gives you flexibility to adjust, uh, especially. If you're shooting somewhere outdoors or you're hiking or something like that, um, as you move around, you might warm up. And then if you only have one really heavy layer, taking that off, suddenly you go from being freezing to boiling and it's just not a it's not a good experience. So right. if you have more layers, then you can much more uh, easily regulate your temperature, keep yourself from sweating up a storm and all sorts of things like that. So layering is a great idea and you don't have to do it with super expensive clothing Um but it's it's just a matter of having options so that you can take off little sweater, underliners, you know, your overcoat, whatever it is. Um, that's my my sort of number one winter living tip. <laughs> yeah, and there are lots of information uh, on the internet about how to layer properly, because the the order of the layers is important. Like you, for example, I mean, we'll try to put a few links on the show notes uh, on tips and how to do it properly. But the idea is that you want a base layer that sucks moisture out of your body and lets it breathe outside. That way you don't sweat, because when you sweat, that's when you get really cold inside, yep. uh, even if you're wearing a, be- a heavy coat on top. Uh, so basically, the order of the layers has to be such that moisture can get away from your body, but cold is not allowed in. 
Yeah, basically. And there are systems to do it effectively. And you don't have you don't need like four or five layers. Maybe with just three, you're you're good to go. Uh, in all but the most extreme conditions. So if you yeah. take a few minutes to read through a couple articles on the web, you're you're going to be fine. Yeah. So turning it towards photography, I think the biggest thing uh, that affects shooting specifically is what you're doing with your hands, right? Because you've got to actually manipulate your camera. So uh, mittens make that very difficult. So you're stuck with gloves in many cases. Um, Josh, what do you do about shooting in the winter in terms of like hand protection? Do you have special gloves or do you have a technique or what's going on? No, not really. Um, I was definitely going to say like gloves over mitts. Um, I have an old pair of like, they're like kind of crappy black old leather dress gloves that are thinner now than they ever, you know, when they were originally purchased and, and there's a rip in them. And realistically, the nice part about them is that they're actually perfect for shooting because they're so like, because the leather's kind of been worn down for so long, uh, they're thin, they're easy to move around. And like, I can feel just about everything through the leather, no matter where, where right. I'm at. So, um, for me, like uh, the answer to that question is use like an old pair of gloves. Uh, maybe like if you've, I don't recommend mini mitts, mini mitts are, uh, like a big waste of time in my opinion, unless you're willing to strap like mittens over top of your mini mitts and then you quickly rip the mittens off and then, you know, shoot that way. But I'd, re I'd recommend like an, um, like an, a worn pair of, uh, of leather gloves. Um, lots of people around here, like they're not photographers, but like working people will use like, you guys ever seen like line, like working gloves? Like you go down to like a lumber yard and they're wearing like working gloves like that. You, know what I'm, you guys know what I'm yeah. talking about? Yeah. yeah. I've seen those. Um, like those actually work surprisingly well as well. It looks a little bit odd. You know, like you're not, you don't have a hammer in your toolkit. You've got a photography, like a camera, but Same like, they work pretty well. The, uh, right. I, I, I would argue that you need to be able to feel like feel around the camera. Um, you know, you're, you're the tips of your fingers might get a little cold, but at the end of the day, I think you need to be able to feel things. And so the thinner the glove, the better minus mini mitts. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah. no, I think it does. Okay. Maybe, I don't know if it's a really a thorough answer, but yeah. Well, no, I mean, it, uh, this is why, where different options come in. So it, it also depends on how much money you want to spend. Because, for example, if you go and you search around for um, photography tips regarding gloves, you, you will find some gloves that are kind of designed for it. And the only problem with them is that they're very expensive, right? Because they're, they're designed in such a way as to give you that a slightly thinner material over the fingertips so that you can feel around and, and sort of know what you're doing um, in a tactile sense. But they're also, um, they've got enough layers and materials and whatever in them to, uh, to keep you warm. Um, and the advantage of those is that it's basically like one glove and you just keep it on and it's perfect. Um, because otherwise what I found myself doing is depending on the glove that I'm wearing, I do sometimes feel like I have to take it off to do the shooting. And that's always a awful experience because then you're spending time trying to warm that hand back up and it's it's just not great um i came across a technique that i i, don't, I haven't tried yet but it, it would be interesting to know if uh, if you guys have um someone suggested actually having some of those mini um you know the, the very basic uh wool gloves that are super thin they're not really they don't protect very well um, and then having a mitten over top of that so that your hands are warm and when you shoot you just take the mitten part off and your hand is still protected by the glove while you're shooting, and then you put the mitten back on when the camera goes away, and it's you know you're still you're still sort of switching between um, having two layers and one layer and whatever, but it's it's potentially a better solution than uh, leaving your hands 
entirely bare to the elements while you're shooting. So that's something that I'm going to try at some point because um, it sounds like it could be uh, a decent solution, especially if you've got a little hand warming pad in the mitten so that when you put it back on, you've, you know, your hands warm up faster. Yeah. And potentially you could even go with fingerless gloves. I don't know if there's a special name for that. But. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. And I've, I've, I've also seen the ones where the, the fingertips actually peel off. Um, <laughs> and I used to have a pair of those, but I found that the, uh, you, you lose a lot of heat through those little openings. Yeah. So it wasn't exactly my, my favorite solution. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Anyway, so that's gloves. Um, there's also the subjects to keep in mind. I mean, if you're doing landscape photography, this doesn't really apply, but assuming that you're shooting portraiture outdoors, um, there are certain issues, um, including the fact that your subjects must also not die for the duration of the shoot. And <laughs> not only that, but they have to continue to look good and presentable. And as you know, if you've been out in the cold, um, sometimes you can get the, the rosy cheeks, which are great, but you also get the rosy, runny, raw noses, which are not super flattering. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> Unless you're Rudolph, like the, like the reindeer, right? Right, yeah. Reindeer <laughs> portraiture, you're fine. But if you're shooting humans, then you've got, uh, you've got that to concern yourself with as well. Yeah, red, red noses are, are fun, though. They don't look great, and if you're trying to look professional, they don't look great, but but they're fun. Yeah, yeah. just Photoshop boogers out. So so do you like so tackling that red uh, the, those rosy cheeks? Do you change your white balance or because I mean we could talk about white balance eventually. We're gonna have to like it's cold outside and therefore it's you know a cool white balance. But does that that won't offset the rosy cheek element, will it? No, I think this is where makeup comes in. Like you you yeah. have to have a, a makeup artist as involved in, in in the shooting and have them take care of those things because right yeah. a makeup artist is more important than a camera right yeah, yeah. basically priority number one <laughs> <laughs> um the other thing is uh, you can to some extent deal with it in post um, but i wouldn't do it with the white balance i would do it by selectively desaturating the nose um, and potentially the cheeks if they're too red um, you know just using local adjustments in Lightroom or your, right. your editor of choice and just trying to to mitigate the intensity of the color without um, turning the skin into stone right because that's the the downside is you don't want the the skin tone to be ruined and that's why you know selective adjustments and just it's time consuming but it is possible but yeah if you have access to a makeup artist um, or your model has some sort of makeup skills that'll save you a lot of time yeah that's the ideal scenario. Of course, you can then try to mitigate the eff the effects of red noses in post if you have no other choice. But ideally, you should, you should plan ahead and be prepared for for the situation. Yeah. So that's uh, that's you know something to keep in mind with your subjects. Make sure that they've got a warm drink and that you give them breaks and things like that, so that they're always looking their best. Um, right. The other thing to keep in mind is that during the winter time. Um, you'll typically have much shorter days, which means you have to manage your time better because you don't have an endless amount of hours to deal with um, in the open, you know, with, with proper lighting. So that's something that um, probably is going to affect, especially landscape photographers um, and, and other people who, who are out there for, you know, longer sessions. But, you know, it's important. Keep it in mind. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And if you're really starved for daylight, like uh, maybe you'll have to, divide the photo shoot across multiple days and right. maybe that can get you uh, enough time to get everything done but if you try to go for everything in in the same day be sure to go there early because yeah you can run out of light pretty fast yep and then you run into a separate problem which is that uh, 
the temperature of the light, the color temperature of the light will change very quickly. So you're going to be you're, you're going to have to be paying a lot more attention to that when you're editing the images, even if you shoot on on auto white balance because that doesn't really work 100% of the time. Yep. So how let's let's talk about the effect of snow because snow is like the ultimate reflector, right? So how yep. I'll just throw that out there like how how much does realistically the color of the snow will change a whole pile of the color of the light in the picture, right? Well, more more or less, but it, I think the bigger I mean, not problem, dog pee snow. That, that's not what I yeah. mean. Yeah. Like, <laughs> we take a lot of pee. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I wouldn't worry so much about the color temperature, but um, the, the biggest thing that, that, and this is kind of switching into the technical concerns and, and away from the human concerns, but um, the, the biggest problem that you face with snow is that uh, the camera's metering system is probably going to do a poorer job of getting you a proper exposure right. in a snowy environment because it's always trying to balance things to a neutral gray. So the tendency will be for it to underexpose a snowy um, environment a little bit. So if you're aware of that, then it's really easy to fix because you basically just use an exposure compensation dial or you adjust your settings manually so that you keep things at the proper brightness level so that the snow actually looks white instead of this weird neutrally gray thing where everything is is just looks off, basically. So that's like the biggest thing. So anyway, it just as a, as a good rule of thumb, uh, think about adding perhaps one stop of overexposure. Uh, you know, start from there and then see see how it goes. The ideal way of doing this, of course, is to look at your histogram. Uh, that's yeah. where you're actually going to see if the white levels are where they should be. Um, but yeah, uh, it's it's just a good starting point. If you're shooting a, a scene where almost everything is white or should be white, just crank that uh, exposure compensation dial one stop app. And if you're the other way around works too. If you're shooting a scene where almost everything is supposed to be black, just underexpose the shot by about one stop. You might need to do some further adjustments, but that's a good starting point. Yeah, and a lot of this is also dependent on your camera and and how good the metering algorithms are in the camera. Some of them do a better job than others. So this is something that you've kind of got to test out. And the best way to do it is um, not like Alvaro said, keep the uh, keep an eye on the histogram. But if you can turn on um, highlight warnings, uh, wh whatever your camera calls them, if it's just going to show you little red zebra stripes or something where you've got things underexposed or overexposed, that can be really helpful because then you can look at a scene and immediately be able to tell how good a job your camera is doing at metering that scene, and then you'll know how to compensate for it later. And there's also um, something to be said for using spot metering instead oh, yeah. of the center weighted or average thing. Um, that's just the, it basically tells the camera to only look at the spot underneath your focus point instead of trying to average out over the whole scene. So these are just kinds of the, the settings that you should probably play around with, spend some time on one of the snowy days before your actual shoot, just familiar, familiarizing yourself with how your camera reacts to these things so that you know on the actual day how to compensate for it and you're not scrambling. Right, and spot metering is very useful, but the thing to watch out for there is that if, you're, if you don't pay attention, you're very likely to blow your highlights. Yep. If you're trying to get the, the subject uh, correctly exposed, chances are the dynamic range in the scene is going to be greater than when you're, what your camera sensor can capture. And as a result, you're going to blow your highlights. So always keep an eye on the histogram. It, it doesn't matter what which method you use. Uh, the histogram is the only thing where you can actually see what you're getting. 
Yeah. And the other, speaking of blown highlights, uh, one of the obvious problems with snowy landscapes in particular is that, like Josh was saying, snow reflects light and it does a lot of that. So very often in a winter daytime scene, there's a huge amount of light and it's very difficult to get, uh, for example, a shallow depth of field for a portrait because your camera's trying to crank the shutter speed just to keep the exposure reasonable. Um, and that's where you might find yourself if you're if you're stuck doing daylight shooting in a snowy landscape, you might have to use filters, uh, whether it's a, a neutral density filter of some sort or a graduated filter that can be super helpful. Um, and it's just another thing to keep in mind. Um, the obvious and cheaper solution is to not shoot in the middle of the day, which is pretty much applicable regardless of season, but especially in the wintertime where the problem is even worse. Right. Um, so, you know, going into uh, your shoot during golden hour, that's, you know, a better idea, whether it's the morning or the or the evening. Um, golden minute. Golden minute, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because it's so short, Yeah. Um, but that's, that's one other thing to keep in mind is, is just, uh, it's, it can be, the, the lighting can be very, very harsh. So you'll have to use your, your full suite of tools and, uh, and shooting techniques and things like that to, to get around that. Yeah, absolutely. That being said though, like winter photography, I mean, at least here in Southern Manitoba, like we have, it's, it's more cloudy more often, which I mean, yeah, it's brighter, but at the very least, like it's not super bright and sunny. It, right. I would argue that it's less sunny overall. The, the, so the light is more dispersed. So you, I mean, at the very least, like you're not dealing with harsh shadows. Right. Um, so anyway, just another little anecdote. Yeah. And even if you are, wintertime presents some interesting opportunities for minimalistic landscape photography and, and really taking advantage of the harsh light um, to, to make these really stark light paintings um, of, of landscapes and architecture and things like that. So it's not like it's not like you can't shoot things or anything like that. It's just, uh, you know, another factor to be aware of. And if you can use it to your advantage to get unique kinds of shots that you wouldn't be able to do as easily in the summertime, then, you know, all the better for it. OK, so so um, you go up into Antarctica or up, down, holy smoke. Uh, so up into the Arctic or down into Antarctica. Yep. And I've had some people tell me um you know, like condensation can build up, right? So it's it's cold outside. Your camera has to adjust. It's an electrical piece of equipment. It adjusts to the temperature outside. And then you bring it inside and it's, you know, whatever, 15 to 20 degrees Celsius inside. And all of that moisture that's caught in the camera has to go somewhere and is changing because of the temperatures and so on and so forth. So how do you, we, we should talk about how to like minimize, minimize the amount of condensation buildup within the camera. I've had some photographers tell me to use like, you know, Ziploc bags and, and a wide gamut of, of different ways to keep your camera from um, essentially having a bunch of condensation buildup inside. How do you guys handle it? Oof, I, I don't know that I'm going to be of much help here because I was terrified when they, this, right, 20 yeah, degree this happened to me once <laughs> and I was terrified. Uh, I don't know if you remember guys, but a year ago, when I went to Paris for my for my New Year's Eve last year, I rented a Canon lens, the 35 millimeter of 1.4, and it it arrived home in a super fancy briefcase, completely sealed, completely. And I don't know if they if they you know shipped it inside a freezer or whatever. But when I opened it, it was super cold, and as a result, I I just opened it, took the the lid off the the lens, and it was completely condensed. Like it was foggy i couldn't see anything and i was super scared like saying i hope this clears 
<laughs> you know, over time because if not, I'm not paying for the lens. I mean, I just opened it and it was like this. Uh, I was scared that I, maybe I should have waited and let it, uh, you know, warm up a little bit more gradually before taking it out of the case. Uh, but I, I, I didn't know. I wasn't expecting it to be cold. So uh, good news is that, yes, it did clear out over time. So it just takes a lot longer, right? Uh, yeah, it took a few hours. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how wow. many Ooh. exactly, but at least two or three hours, definitely. Yeah, this is a this is kind of a spectrum because depending on how extreme the temperature is, you have to do more or less um, to to deal with this problem, and it also depends a little bit on the degree of. Uh, moisture sealing that your camera has uh, or, and your camera and lens combination specifically. Um, but in general, um, there's a few things to keep in mind. The, the Ziploc bag trick is is not bad. Um, I don't think that it's necessary in most cases because the goal really is to just make sure that the temperature transition is as gradual as you can make it. So the mistake that a lot of people, like when condensation typically happens is if you've been shooting for a while outside and you bring your camera inside and it's still like hanging around your neck with the lens cap off. Right. Then you're going to get condensation immediately. That's a bad, That just don't do that, basically. Um, what, what I've done and what has basically been sufficient for dealing with Canadian winters in my case is... When I'm done shooting outside, the lens cap goes on the camera, the camera goes in the bag, and I bring the bag inside, and then the bag gets left alone for at least an hour. Um, and that gives an opportunity for the temperature to equalize enough that I don't have to worry about condensation when I do take it out and take the cards out and whatever. And if, if you're in a hurry, you can just take the cards out outside, right? That's the other thing to, to worry about. Just give the camera equipment time to adjust to the temperature. Um, the other thing is I always keep little silica gel packets in my camera bags for this exact reason, because it makes it much easier for uh, there to be less moisture in the air inside the bag. So there's less of a chance of condensation while that temperature equalization process is going on. Um, mostly like if you're if you're talking about Ziploc bags and things like that, that's the kind of thing that you have to resort to if you're dealing with actual Arctic level temperatures. Um, so, so for, like for here, most of, like, like here, <laughs> well, for, for most cases where we're dealing with like minus 20, uh, minus 25, stuff like that, you, you really shouldn't have to worry about this stuff. Um, but if you are going into areas where the temperature is regularly dipping around minus 40, and by the way, this is Celsius, the, the real yeah. measure yeah. of temperature, um, <laughs> just because we have a lot of American listeners. So this is, this is all Celsius. Um, if you get to about minus 40, then you might need to resort to, um, to things like Ziploc bags. I've also heard people having a dedicated little, um, you know, the, the cooler boxes that you typically use for picnics and things like that. Smart. They'll bring their camera in and put it in one of those and let the temperature equalize there because it's even more gradual that way. So basically that's the rule of thumb to keep in mind is the reason condensation happens is because you're going from a cold environment to a warm one and the camera's adjusting that temperature way too quickly. So the more you can do to slow that down, the better. Yeah. I, I would also argue don't like, don't take the lens off the camera, right? Especially if it's weather sealed. Yeah. That, you're just opening up more holes for condensation right. to leak in. Right. So. Yeah, leave it alone. Leave it alone until the temperature is equalized. That's the the main thing. One tip that I've seen before on the internet, and and I think it's a pretty awful tip actually, is to uh, to hide the camera in your coat when you're not using it. Um, that's a really bad idea because you're going from extreme cold to not only warmer but also humid because humans are sweaty. 
Um, so you're, you're basically putting it into a humid environment, then taking it back out. Like you're, you're making the problem worse by doing that. It's better to just leave it to deal with the cold. It's going to be cold, but that's, that's okay. The problem arises only when you bring it back indoors. So either in the bag or uh, around you, but not, not in your coat. Yeah. I think the reason people recommend that, that technique is because they're trying to conserve battery life. And in order for batteries to last longer, the, the camera needs to be a little warmer than it would be if you just left it outside. Uh, but guess what? That doesn't really work. The The only way you can extend the battery life of your camera in such cold conditions is to just have more batteries with you. Yeah. Well, not not only. Well, no, but it's the most effective one by far. So yeah, I would just carry a few ba- a few extra batteries. Just make your peace with the fact that it, they're going to last uh, not as long as they would under normal circumstances and be prepared for it. Yeah. Uh, specifically, depending on your battery, you, you're looking at probably less than 70% of its theoretical capacity, probably closer to half, depending on, on how cold it is. Um, one thing that that is that will actually help is if you find a way to make it so that all of your spare batteries are in the closest pockets to your body, because that way it'll, it'll be as warm as it can be. Um, and then the other thing to keep in mind is that You'll put it in the bat in the camera. You'll shoot for a while. It will supposedly die. If you take that battery out, put it back in your warm pocket, and swap another one in, by the time you've killed that new battery, the original one will probably have more usable charge. Um, so you can actually get a few cycles out that way um, if you're constantly heating and reheating your your batteries with uh, with your pockets. Some people keep them in the in the glove of the hand that they're not using if they're, uh, you know, small batteries. This obviously won't work if you're shooting with a big DSLR. Um, but this is this is like the worst possible problem for mirrorless shooters. And this is where, um, you know, people who are dealing with winter landscape photography using mirrorless cameras are just in, in terrible shape because something like a Sony A7R Mark II, which doesn't have the best battery life to begin with, uh, you start taking that out and it's like you you turn it on and frame your shot and you basically need a new battery. It's right. it's not that bad, but it's it's really like that's where you really feel the battery life. Um, so just be aware that if you are going to be dealing with cold weather a lot, you're going to need a lot of batteries. Hey, at least they're, sm- they're smaller, right? That's true. They're smaller. <laughs> yeah, you can fit a bunch of them in a pocket. So <laughs> there's that. Um, All right. So what else yeah. is there? So how about we talk about this mirrorless versus DSLR fight a little bit? Because I think that the DSLR in general uh, wins the cold weather argument, like hands down. I don't know. Is there ever a scenario where a mirrorless camera would be the better choice to take outside in a cold day? Not necessarily the better, but I would argue that they're pretty much the same other than for battery life. Yeah, there's really no other reason why a DSLR would be any better than a properly weather-sealed mirrorless camera. There's no, in in fact, it might actually take longer to cool down or to warm up rather when you bring it back inside. So from that perspective, it, it might even be more frustrating avoiding condensation. Okay, so the few times that I head outside, few times, whenever, whenever I head outside, I, I run into two air, two issues. If I put my eye to the view, the electronic viewfinder on a mirrorless camera, my eye emits enough heat that it fogs up the little, little piece of glass in the back and I can't see the viewfinder. Right. So right. I have to actually use the live view uh, on the back of the camera more often. Um, I mean, I guess, long story short, is you're going to fog up that piece of glass on a DSLR as well. So yep. it's not a big deal. But I, all I'm trying to get at is at the end of the day, a DSLR camera is way less reliant on electrical portions uh, to operate, right? So therefore... 
it, it goes beyond just battery life, wouldn't you say? Well, I think you're actually making a pretty good case for mirrorless cameras here because if you're forced to use the rear LCD, traditionally live view mode has worked much better on mirrorless cameras than on DSLRs. Fair, but but at the end of the day, like okay, th- I can see that uh, from the viewfinder perspective. But as a whole, like a mirrorless camera is way more reliant on electrical everything. Everything is electrical, so therefore, uh, like, would that not work in favor of a DSLR in the cold weather? If because we all know, like, electrical stuff sucks in cold weather. Well, we're talking about, again, like at the point where that matters, it's going to be in extreme temperatures and it's going to affect both in interesting ways because the screens, for example, um, are LCD screens uh, and they like when you see in really cold temperatures that your LCD is starting to get a little sluggish and things like that, it's because the liquid crystals in the display are freezing. Um, and that's going to affect both of them equally. That's that's not really something that a DSLR is going to have an advantage over. Um, the one thing where this becomes problematic, where the electronics become vulnerable, is actually during that period of bringing them back inside. It's not so much while you're shooting, it's when you bring them back inside. If there's a lot of condensation, there's a lot more short-circuiting and damage that can happen inside a mirrorless camera than a DSLR. But assuming that you are, again, dealing with condensation properly um there's not really an additional vulnerability on that front um the the other thing to keep in mind and and something in favor of dslrs is that traditionally because they're larger their weather sealing is more effective than a lot of weather sealing on typical mirrorless cameras so there are exceptions to that but um broadly speaking you can think of dslrs you know the professional level dslrs as being built to a higher degree of weather resistance um, than their mirrorless equivalents. But that's something that's going to likely continue to change over time as as those two camps balance out. Um, and at that point, the, the, like there's there's no there's nothing about DSLRs as a technology that that gives them better um, cold weather um, effectiveness, especially because they have they don't have the electronic shutter in most cases. Um, to fall back on and one of the things that can happen mechanically is that your shutter mechanism seizes up because of the cold and then you just can't take photos you're done so that's a problem and on dslrs there's the added complexity of the mirror mechanism it's not just the shutter it's also the mirror right i mean i don't know how vulnerable to the cold that is it may not be any significance uh but it's there right but but swing back to that for that that LCD, you know, the the liquid crystals or whatever it's called, it freezes up in cold temperatures. Like, if we swing back to that, okay, if you hold the camera up to your eyeball long enough, eventually that fog will go away, right? Like, you go cold because it's hanging at your chest or, or wherever it's in your hand. You bring it up to your eye and it takes like half a second. And eventually that fog kind of, you know, it goes away. Like, at this point in time, a DSLR is going to have, like, you're, you're viewing, like, light you're not viewing electrical screen yep I, I still think like when i go outside you know you, you had talked about how you get down to minus 40 like it's minus 25 outside here like 99 percent of the time in this in the winter and i run into these problems for sure by minus 20 celsius so like this is a regular basis and without a doubt like i would way way rather look through an optical viewfinder where i'm looking at real light and a mirror and reflections and all that stuff than an electrical screen like a hundred times out of a hundred, I would choose that over a little EVF. Right. So anyway, I, all I'm, I'm trying to get at is that there might be more mechanical stuff that can break inside of a DSLR and, and maybe they're not um, 
as reliant on electrical things. So therefore they might break down worse later on. But I would way rather look through an optical viewfinder than an electronic viewfinder in the cold. Fair enough. Right. And interestingly enough, that's why um, you'll see, for example, that's why Fuji makes the X-Pro2. And that's one of the things that people, you know, when they think of the X-T2 as, as better always, this is one area where the X-Pro2 actually holds an advantage because it does have Without that, a doubt. that yes. optical viewfinder. And so that's something that, uh, again, is not so much reliant on um, the DSLR versus mirrorless technology. It's It's got to do with the design choices that, that companies have made in making mirrorless cameras. Most of them just have EVFs. And so, yes, those will have that, that weakness, um, but not all of them. And, you know, the, the X-Pro2 is just the, the handy example um, but having an optical viewfinder does does help in those kinds of situations. And having also like a longer eye cup might help um, reduce the amount of condensation that happens when you put your face to it as well, um, just because it, it gives a little more distance. Um, but anyway, that's, yeah, that's, that's an interesting consideration. And I think that um, right now it's too early to be able to say definitively that one is better than the other. But like with anything else, uh, that'll change over time. Yeah, because it's not... Uh, universally better. I mean, optical viewfinders might be better in the in the way that you you guys just described, but they're also worse in the sense that you'll you're gonna get blinded a lot more easily by the excess of, of light. I mean, you're looking at snow, and you're you're gonna have to be squinting all the time because the optical viewfinder in in those circumstances is just you're you're getting tons of light beamed into your eye, and that's very uncomfortable. Yeah, you can't compensate for it. Potentially even dangerous. Yeah. So the, the the beauty of the electronic viewfinder there is that it already adjusted the brightness for you. You're not you're never going to have problems with an with an EVF uh, in in that situation. Wear sunglasses. <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, the other thing, just in terms of uh, in terms of shutters seizing, that's a problem that is more likely to happen than a than the mirror mechanism. Um, having an issue like shutter seizing is, is fairly common. It's generally, it'll, it'll just sort of misfire once or twice. It's not going to stop working entirely. Um, and it's not the end of the world. If it happens, it doesn't mean your camera's broken, um, in most cases. Um, but it is something where having a B cam comes in handy because you've got one that's out and the other one is in your bag. So if the one that's out is just too cold, that one goes back in the bag. The other one comes out and it's fine to shoot for a while. And then you can swap them out again um, as needed, basically to, to get around that issue. But this is like, these are the kinds of problems that you're dealing with in very select circumstances. This is really not, um, this is not the kind of, of cold issue that you're going to run into in most cases, unless, unless you are literally shooting penguins in the Antarctic, you're probably not going to run into a lot of these issues, which is good because most of the, again, this is, um, this is taking into account the assumption that you are shooting with a weather sealed, um, professional level mirrorless camera or DSLR. If you're, if you're using a consumer grade camera, you'll probably run into these same issues, but sooner. Um, and unfortunately there's not much that you can do for those in terms of mitigating the issues. Um, like the condensation thing applies universally, but, uh, if it stops working in the cold that, you know, and it's, it's a cheaper camera, that's like, you're just, you're sort of out of luck. There's not much you can do about that. For safety reasons, if you're shooting penguins in Antarctica, just be sure to watch out for polar bears. Seriously. Yeah. You never know when they're coming. That's very important. Yeah. That's a good call. Happens to me all the time. Yeah. Also, if you happen to domesticate the penguins, you can wrap your batteries into little egg-shaped things and then just slide them underneath and the penguins will keep the batteries warm for you. Nice. Freeze up some pockets. Nice. You can even charge Pro them. Pro tip. Yeah. 
There you go. That's my that's my professional tip for shooting penguins. Um, <laughs> the other thing uh, I just I noticed this that we we didn't mention it. Um, if you're shooting on a tripod, you're probably going to want to put spikes on the feet because if you put it on ice, it will slide away from you, oh, yeah. and that's a very expensive mistake. Oh yeah, <laughs> to make. And by the way, once the, the uh, when you're trying to buy a tripod, you will often see that there are several models that appear identical, uh, and often the only difference between them is the material they're made out of. Usually you can see a cheaper uh, variant which is made out of aluminum and a more expensive, often probably even as much as twice as expensive, uh, That those are and those are usually made of carbon fiber, uh, which is a very cool material, but one of its main advantages over aluminum is that it handles cold so much better. Not just because it, it won't flex or it, it won't break with the cold, but because you can actually touch it without getting, you know, sticky fingers on the metal. Yeah. And that, yeah, <laughs> that's a big point in its favor. So if it, basically, if you, shoot, if you shoot in the cold, always go with a carbon fiber uh, tripod over an aluminum one. Like, no question about it. And, and if you do go with aluminum, don't lick it. Yeah. Yeah, don't lick it. <laughs> don't lick your tripods, people. <laughs> They're not that tasty anyway, so... Uh, okay. Uh, the last thing that I wanted to mention, um, which is something that you kind of have to keep in mind at the point where you're buying a camera, if you know that you're going to be shooting in the cold a lot, given like, regardless of what kind of gloves you're using, um, winter clothing is, is bulky. That's just, you know, that's the way it is. So ideally, if you're going to be shooting in the winter, you're going to want a camera that is not only big enough to make sure that you can get from control to control, even with gloves on, but also that enough of the controls have physical dials on them that you're able to adjust things very easily without having to remove too many layers. And that's where something like Olympus's dual dial system comes in really handy. Uh, Fuji having, you know, physical dials for everything really handy. You know, ideally, the less digging you have to do in menus to adjust basic shooting settings, the better. Right. Um, and the more space there is between individual buttons on things, the better. Like any camera that's got those really, really tiny little closed in uh, D-pads, um, it's really hard to hit the correct direction when you've got gloves on. And that's something that you actually have to worry about if you're shooting a lot in the cold, because, you know, if you need to use those settings, you'll probably get it wrong. And it's just an additional frustration that you don't want to have. Right. And if your camera has uh, configurable modes, like there are always one or more uh, buttons that you can configure, but some cameras have sort of a memory recall function and you can store several configuration modes for every button in the camera. So for example, uh, my Sony a7 II has, I think is two modes, C1 and C2. So I can... In theory, I could uh, assign different functions for each button on the camera and then have two entirely different configurations uh, stored in memory. So, for example, I could have a summer shooting configuration and a winter shooting configuration. So, if you know you're going to be shooting in the cold, you just turn the dial to the C1 mode, and that's for winter. If you're going to a hot place, just turn it to a C2 mode, and off you go. If, If your camera has those features... It's always worth it to look into it and you know spend uh, a couple hours uh, assigning the buttons that you're likely to use because, like you said, f- uh, just playing with the menus when it's minus 25 outside is just no fun at all. Yeah, yeah. 
So Mike, hopefully we've answered your question. Um, if not, obviously feel free to follow up, but that's, that's a sort of basic overview of, uh, of winter photography. I will say that, um, there's, there's a whole other side of this that we haven't talked about that, um, is kind of the, the inspiration during winter for whatever reason, people seem to have a, a harder time, uh, getting inspiration to, to shoot things in wintertime, either because, you know, things look duller or it's just cold and it's less, you know, appealing to go outside. Um, but that's a whole other side of the discussion that, that we can potentially revisit. Um, but it's worth keeping in mind. I personally find that winter is, you know, you just have to shoot different things, but, um, you know, there, there's still inspiring stuff to be, to be found and, and good shots to be had out there in the winter. You just have to convince yourself to leave the warmth of your home to go look for it.